As we turn there, this time we're going to dismiss our children to Children's Church. So if you have little kids who are pre-K through third grade, they can go to Children's Church in the back. I want to send a special greeting to those who are watching at home. Boy, this whole COVID thing has really hit our community pretty hard. So I know a number of sick folks are at home resting and recovering and watching online. So welcome. We're glad to have you here worshiping with us virtually, and we look forward to seeing you in person soon. And uh, David mentioned this already, but the fact that we were able to broadcast and we kind of learned all of this on the fly in the last couple of years is a great testimony to the uh, knowledge and skill of our sound team. So thank you guys once again, and gals once again, for really making that happen. It's been very, very meaningful. Where we are working our way through the book of Nehemiah on a series that we are calling Gospel Rebuild. We are seeing that our God is the God who puts broken people back together again. And broken cities, and broken churches, and broken families. There is no pile of rubble too great for the Lord our God to not put back together again. Well, we're going to read Nehemiah chapter 10, but what we're going to do is we're going to start in actually Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38, and then we'll kind of continue through, okay? Let's read God's word. The people said, because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Now, for the next... 26, seven verses, we are going to get the names of the princes and Levites and the priests, and it sounds a lot like the Jerusalem phone book, and so I will not be reading all of those names. I have nothing to prove. <laughs> Verse 28, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord, and his rules and his statutes, we will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath day or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt." We also take on ourselves the obligation to give a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offering to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our fathers' houses, at times appointed year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground, 
and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God. And to bring to the Levites the tithes from the ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all of our towns where, they, where we labor. And the priests, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chamber of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. This is God's word. Let's go to him in prayer. O Lord our God, even in reading this act of tremendous generosity, I am deeply convicted of my own lack of generosity. I pray, Lord God, that you would do a great work in me and in all of us, that we might honor you in everything that we say and everything that we do. I pray, Lord, that you would take us as living stones and and put us together, that we together might become the house of God, living and breathing with you, Lord Jesus, as the cornerstone. Lord, we ask simply that you would speak, for we, your servants, are listening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you made New Year's resolutions this year? Anyone? Any New Year's resolutions? No, just me? All right, well, amen, and uh, we'll see. No. How many of you who are not telling me that you made New Year's resolutions have already broken at least one of your resolutions? I have. Well, this week I found a poll from CBS News, very interesting poll. According to the poll, only 29% of all the people that they polled made New Year's resolutions this year. 67% didn't make any New Year's resolutions at all, and 4% refused to answer. I'm always fascinated by the people who refuse to answer. Just hang up the phone. I, I have a little red button on my phone that I call the refuse to answer button. And when I don't want to answer, I push that button and the phone hangs up. But I digress. Now, for the people who did make New Year's resolutions this year, here are the top nine, they couldn't even make it to ten, the top nine New Year's resolutions for 2022. Here we go. Number one, losing weight or improving your health. That's always good. Number two, improving your finances. Number three, enjoying life more. Not very specific, but that's a good thing to do. It's important to enjoy life. Number four, spending more time with people that we care about. That's important. 
Number five, quitting a bad habit. Number six, becoming more organized and getting more done. Number seven, taking on a new skill or challenge or hobby. Number eight, something else. And I don't know what that is. And number nine, refuse to answer. There they are again. Just hang up the phone. You don't have to tell them you refuse to answer. Just refuse to answer. Now, what's interesting is that in this poll, nobody made any spiritual resolutions. Nobody said, read the Bible every day. Nobody said, pray more. Nobody said, be more loving. Nobody said, be more forgiving. Nobody said, I need more Jesus in my life. Nobody said, I want to deepen my relationship with God. Nobody said, I want to make a stronger commitment to my local church. Nobody said anything about keeping the Sabbath. Nobody said anything about tithing. Nobody said anything about putting God first in our marriage and dating relationships. Now, I bring this up not only because it is January 9th and we're in the beginning month of a new year, but because this morning the Israelites are going to make some very bold, very public resolutions. They're not New Year's resolutions, but they are new birth resolutions. Having been delivered from bondage and slavery in Babylon, where they were exiles for 70 years, having been restored to the promised land, the Israelites are ready for a new beginning. They're ready to start over. They're ready to make new commitments to the God who delivered them. So what kind of resolutions did they make? And what do these old covenant resolutions teach us about the kind of resolutions that we should be making as the new covenant people of God? If you're taking notes this morning, here's the outline. What we're going to do is we're going to walk through this passage, and as we do, we're going to see four things about the resolutions that these Israelites made. First, we'll see the context of their resolutions. Very important. Second, we'll see the content of their resolutions. Third, we'll see the collapse of their resolutions. And fourth, we will meet the Christ of their resolutions. By the time we're done, I hope all of us have confidence to make new resolutions for this new year, knowing that there is grace for resolution breakers through Jesus, the ultimate resolution keeper. Are you ready? Let's take a closer look. We begin with the context of their resolutions. Chapter 9, verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. The Israelites made these resolutions because of all of this. Now, when you see something like that, it's appropriate to ask, what, does, what is all of this? 
when they say we've done it because of all this, what exactly is he talking about? Well, all of this refers to God's faithfulness. All of this refers to the gospel of God's grace. Now, here's the backstory. Back in, in chapter 8, Ezra preached a six-hour sermon on the first five books of the Bible. And remarkably, nobody complained because they had never read the first five books of the Bible, much less heard a sermon explaining what the law of Moses means. They were overwhelmed with gratitude and joy. It was beautiful. The Spirit was at work. And then in chapter 9, after a bit of introspection, the Israelites spent eight more hours confessing their sins by contrasting their unfaithfulness with the history of God's faithfulness to his people. According to Nehemiah 9, God is our creator. He is the God who created the heavens and the earth. He created all of the people and all of the animals and all of the mountains and all of the oceans. God is our sustainer. As many of us learned in sunny Sunday school, he's got the whole world in his hands. As the Apostle Paul taught at Mars Hill, in him we live and move and have our being. The God who is our God made unbreakable promises to Abraham. He said, I will make you the father of a great nation. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, making Abraham the father of everyone who believes. All of us are Abraham's children because of faith in Jesus Christ. God set his people free from slavery in Egypt. Do you remember the ten plagues? Do you remember the exodus? Do you remember the Passover where God's people were covered by the blood of a lamb? God gave his people the law because he is a faithful father and he loves us. He gave, he gave God's people bread from heaven and water from a rock. And when God's people sinned, God raised up judges to deliver them. Chapter 9, verse 27. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of of their enemies. The people kept sinning and God kept forgiving them over and over again. He was compassionate. He was merciful. He was gracious. He was good. He raised up Ezra to rebuild the temple. He raised up Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He gave his people priests and Levites, elders and deacons. In chapter 10, verse 28, we're told that these resolution makers included women and children and all who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands unto the law of God. That means Gentiles. That means us. That means God's grace 
turns outsiders into insiders. Because of all this, we will be holy. Because of all this, we will be faithful. Because of all of this, we will worship you. Because of all of this, we will sign our names to this resolution. Because of all this, we will rededicate our lives to God. Do you see why this isn't moralism? Do you see why this isn't legalism? These people, the people of Israel, were not bargaining with God. They were not saying to God, Okay, God, here's the deal. We will keep the commandments, and then you can reward us for our obedience. It doesn't work that way. In the Christian life, in the life of faith, grace comes first. First comes grace, and then comes gratitude. First comes trust in the God who loves us with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, always-and-forever love. And then, only when our hearts are gripped by God's amazing grace, do we obey. That's the context for this resolution. And it should be the context for all of our resolutions. We don't read the Bible so that God will love us. We don't pray so that God will bless us. We don't give and serve so that God will forgive us. So that God will heal us. We do everything that we do. Giving and going and loving and serving because God loves us, because God has blessed us, because God has forgiven us, because God heals us either in this life or in the life to come. See, without that context, all of our resolutions are meaningless. Vanity of vanities, as the writer of Ecclesiastes teaches us. But with that context, within that covenant of grace, within the unshakable promises of God, breathing in the air of God's Spirit, our resolutions are infinitely meaningful because they show the world the love of Jesus. Now, the second thing that we'll see is the content of, of these resolutions. The Israelites essentially resolved to do four things. The first resolution is about the Bible. Verse 29. All of us enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. The people of Israel are saying, we will obey God's law. We will put the Bible first in our lives. We will read the Bible. We will study the Bible. When Ezra preached for six hours, we won't complain. And when Pastor Joel preaches for 35 minutes, we will not complain because we love the Bible. 
Now, maybe you've never read the Bible, or if you have a hard time reading the Bible, and you wonder, well, why is the Bible so important? Why do you preach on the Bible, and why do you talk about the Bible? The Bible tells us who God is. God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. God is triune, one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God is love. God is merciful. God is righteous. God is holy. God is steadfast. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His steadfast love endures forever. Jesus, God's Son, is the bread of life, the living water, the cornerstone, the true temple, the seed of Abraham, the vine, the door, the good shepherd. The Spirit is the Spirit of life. The Spirit is the Spirit of hope. The Spirit is the Spirit of conviction. The Spirit is the Spirit of inspiration, breathing out God's Word. That's who God is. The Bible not only tells us who God is, the Bible tells us who we are. We are image bearers, people who are made in the image of God. We have infinite dignity, infinite value, infinite worth because we are image bearers of God. We are sinners, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are God's beloved children, adopted in God the Father, through God the Son, in God the Holy Spirit. We have been chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. We have been redeemed from our slavery to sin. We are empowered filled with the Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. The Bible tells us what happened about creation and fall and redemption, about the manger and the cross and the empty tomb, about Christmas and Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And on Ascension Sunday, the Bible tells us that Jesus is our King and on Pentecost Sunday, the Bible tells us that the Spirit is alive. The Bible tells us what's going to happen when Jesus comes back to finish what he started, making all things new. For hundreds and hundreds of years, the people of Israel hadn't taken the Bible for granted. They didn't read it. Do you? Do you take the Bible for granted? Do you read God's Word? Do you know who God is? Do you know who you are? Do you know what happened? Do you know what's happening? Do you know what will happen when Jesus comes again? You can know. You can read the Bible and you can know. 
make this New Year's resolution with me. Let's read our Bible together this year. David talked about it a little bit already, and you've seen the slides, and there's signs around here. We're reading the Bible together this year. We're reading the one-year chronological Bible. You can download that thing. You can go on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. You can buy a copy, hard copy for yourself. Whatever your plan is, would you resolve to read God's Word this year? Even if you don't finish the whole thing, that's okay. Would you take up God's Word and read. Now, the second resolution that they make is about marriage. Verse 30, we will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Now, it might seem like, sound like it, but the issue here is not interracial marriage or interracial relationships. As Christians, we believe that interracial marriage and cross-cultural relationships are good. We love it when people from different races and different cultures and different backgrounds come together, meet, fall in love, get married, have kids, honor God together in their marriage. That is amazing. You know, if you've been here for a little while, that one of my favorite books in the whole Bible is the book of Ruth. One of the most beautiful books in the whole Bible is about interracial marriage. About a woman, Ruth, who is a Moabite, who marries Boaz, who's an Israelite. They come together because of their common faith, their common love, which is what really matters. So, if that's not the issue, if he's not talking about interracial marriage, what is the issue? The issue is believing people people who love and worship the true God of Israel, marrying people who do not know and do not love the true God of of Israel. The Bible says that is a big problem because marriage is more than a contract. It's more than a partnership. It's more than romance. It's more than friendship. It's more than two people agreeing to move in together so that they can split the rent. Marriage is the most intimate relationship that two people can have with one another on this side of heaven. The Bible calls marriage a mystical union. A union that is so indescribable that the Apostle Paul says the only valid analogy for this is the mystical union that takes place between Christ and the church. Christian marriage is about the the union of two people who are each united to Jesus by faith. It's about the union of two people who see the world the same way. It's about the union of two people who have the most important thing in common, and that is Jesus and the gospel of his grace. It's the union of two people who are sinners, who forgive one another because they have been forgiven. It's about two saints who are willing to dream together because in Christ we have hope. Now, it doesn't always work that way. Again, we live on this side of heaven. And some of you are married to people who are not believers. 
Some of you were not, you were not a believer when you got married. You became a believer after you got married. Your spouse didn't become a believer. And so now, it's just you. Maybe you got married to someone who professed faith in Jesus Christ. They said, I'm a believer. They said, I love the Lord Jesus. And then, like the seed that fell among the weeds or on the stones, their faith was slowly choked out by the cares of life, by unbelief. And so now they, they're just not interested in Jesus anymore. Now, if that's you, hear this. This resolution is not for you, and it's not about you. If you are married to someone who is not a believer, stay married if you can. Love your spouse. Serve your spouse. Be the best spouse that you can be so that somehow that person will see Jesus through your life and love and sacrifice for them. This is about a Christian who's not married saying, I'm only going to marry a Christian. I'm not going to date someone who is not a Christian because, spoiler alert, that often ends in marriage. I'm not going to flirt with someone who's not a Christian. Same rationale. I'm not going to do romantic texting or DMs with someone who's not a Christian. I'm not going to compromise my commitment to God by becoming romantically involved with someone who is not committed to God. Unmarried people, single people, would you make this your pledge for 2022? I will so commit myself to God that I will not marry or date or become involved with someone who does not believe in Jesus Christ. And parents, parents of teenagers and college students and single people, would you resolve to teach this to your children? To teach this that a relationship with Jesus Christ is the most valuable thing you can look for in a spouse not their income, not the kind of car that they drive, not their connections or their status or their looks. It's Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Would you make that commitment? The third resolution is a resolution about the Sabbath. Verse 31, And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. For believers in the Old Testament, the Sabbath day was the seventh day. Following the pattern of creation, the people would work for six days and they would rest on Saturday, which was the Sabbath, the Lord's day. For New Testament believers, our Sabbath day, the Lord's day, is the first day because we are following the pattern of the resurrection. Jesus defeated sin and death, rising from the dead on the first day of the week, and we work and play and live in response to the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so, the Lord's day, the Sabbath day, the first day of the week, is a day for rest. It's a day for worship. It's a day for love. It's a day for good works. On the Sabbath day, we get a taste of heaven. 
on the Lord's day, we get a tiny, tiny glimpse of the kingdom of God. If you are not observing the Sabbath day, if you're not resting from your work, if you're not worshiping with God's people, if you're not loving and serving and giving to the poor, you are missing out on one of God's greatest gifts to his people. Yes, this is a commandment. Yes, this is keep the Sabbath day. But deeper than that, it's a gift. It's a gift from a loving God to his children. The fourth resolution is a resolution about generosity. In verses 31 through 39, after promising to forgive everyone's debts on the seventh year, the people agree to give their first and best gifts, their tithes, their offerings, even their firstborn children, to support the ministries and ministers of the temple. They conclude with this resolution, verse 39, we will not neglect the house of our God. Generosity is important. It's important to give to the work of the church. Because of your generosity, the gospel is preached. Because of your generosity, hungry people have food to eat. Because of your generosity, lives are saved. The lives of unborn children are saved. Because of your generosity, houses that are destroyed by floods and fires and hurricanes are being repaired. Because of your generosity, missionaries are sent and supported. Because of your generosity, parking lots are being repaved. That's important. None of you parked in the dirt today because of your generosity. Our God is a generous God. May we be generous people. As Jesus taught the first disciples, freely you have received. Freely give. Now, as we come to the home stretch, the third thing we see, after looking at the context of their resolutions and the content of their resolutions, is the collapse of their resolutions. Now, we don't see it in this chapter, in the immediate context, but by the time we get to chapter 13, we will see that the people are right back to marrying unbelievers. They are right back to profaning the Sabbath day, not enjoying the Sabbath day as a blessing from God. They're no longer giving to the temple work. They're hoarding the money for themselves. It's a hard chapter because it forces us to confront an uncomfortable truth. The uncomfortable truth that most of us do not keep our New Year's resolutions. Most of us make grand proclamations to God about what we will do only to fall short time and time again. So much so that many of us, out of a growing sense of cynicism and despair, have given up the practice of making resolutions because we know before we make them that those resolutions will indeed collapse. Are we always generous? No. 
Do we always come to church? No. Do we fully and freely and joyfully support the church and give? No, we don't. You remember what the Israelites said in verse 29? They invoked curses upon themselves. They said essentially, may we be cursed if we do not keep these resolutions. Do you see the stakes? That leads us to the fourth thing we see. The Christ of their resolutions. What happened to the curses? Well, they didn't fall upon God's people. They fell on Jesus. God's own son who died on the cross for our sins. You see, Jesus kept all of these resolutions, all the resolutions that these people made, Jesus kept absolutely perfect. He was generous. He was faithful. He kept the Lord's day so well and so thoroughly that he would heal the sick and raise the dead on the Lord's day. How is that for a glimpse of the kingdom of God? No, he was the Lord of the Sabbath. No one was more loving than Jesus. No one was more holy than Jesus. He was sinless. He was perfect in every way. And yet, he was treated like a promise breaker so that we might be treated like promise keepers. On the cross, he exchanged his record of perfect obedience for our record of sinful disobedience. Ultimately, eternal life isn't about the promises that we make to God. It is about the promises that God has made to us. Our God has resolved to love us. And Jesus always keeps his resolutions. So let's keep walking into 2022 with our heads held high. We're not perfect. No one's perfect. We don't have to be perfect. Jesus is perfect, and Jesus is our Savior. He is the Savior for everyone who believes. Everyone. Do you believe? Is He your Savior? If you do, let's love him and keep his commandments in the new year. Let's go to God in prayer. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for forgiving us. We thank you, Lord, that we can make bold, audacious promises to you, knowing that our salvation is not on the line. I pray, Lord God, that you really would change our hearts that we would love your word, that we would love people, that we would seek to honor you in our marriages, in our dating relationships, Lord, all of these things. We pray that you would change us from the inside out. Take away our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, a heart that beats with love for you and the world. Hear our prayer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.